The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So today we're going to talk about the causes and conditions leading to insight. Insight being the operative English translation of the Thai and Pali word vipassana. So the causes and conditions for insight is basically everything in the Buddhist path. So we'll cover as much as we can, as much as we have time for today. And we will do a combination of talking. Um, I will talk some. We'll have time for discussion or questions and answers. And of course, we want to spend some time actually sitting quietly and doing walking meditation. Then the meal time today, we'll have the meal at, at noon. And then uh, as we... As we eat together, I, I can give a bit of explanation of how we approach food and how we can, can uh, use uh, the whole situation around eating uh, as a meditation in and of itself. Now, in, when we talk about developing insight, it's helpful to have at least somewhat of a clear idea of where we're heading. What is it? Why are we doing this? We can come to a meditation center and uh, just kind of join in and sit down and, and see what happens. And a lot of us have started that way, and eventually we kind of work it out. But it is helpful to have uh, a bit of a, an idea of, well, when we talk about insight, when we talk about liberation, when we talk about purity of consciousness, what are we talking about? And where is this heading? By insight, we essentially mean seeing things as they truly are. This is kind of what the Dhamma is all about. Even the word Dhamma is essentially just means nature and, and the laws according to nature. At the time of the Buddha, there were many different teachers coming and going, and they all had their own Dhamma. Dhamma meaning the, the, the teachings that would lead people uh, to be able to more easily experience the truths of nature. And so when we... People would meet the Buddha and say, well, what is the Buddha Dhamma? What is the Dhamma of the Buddha? So the Buddha's Dhamma is essentially what we have uh, with us today as Dhamma. So we're trying to see things as they truly are. So we're not trying to create something which is uh, artificial. We're not trying to um, engage in a belief system. We're not trying to create more fabrications um, or constructs in our life that would bring us further away from reality, but actually trying to just see things as they truly are and then trust that our, our intuitive understanding uh, will, will be able to discern then the wise way of responding, behaving, speaking, and that gradually has a very positive effect on our minds, our hearts, our lives, people around us. So insight is essentially seeing things as they truly are. Now, you know, we assume that we see things as they truly are to a certain degree already. And this uh, assumption is why people have strong opinions about, about the way things are or the way things should be. And, uh, and so a good place to start is to recognize that none of us see things as they truly are. Just as a basic, a basic understanding of delusion is that the, the, the root cause of our 
uh, lack of enlightenment, the root cause of whatever uh, problems, suffering, dukkha that is created in our lives is because we, we don't see things truly, clearly as they are. Right? This is simply the nature of, of uh, delusion. Now, delusion is very... Delusion itself is not so easy to see. Some of the manifestations of dukkha, some of the manifestations of, of uh, delusion, we can see more clearly, whether it manifests as frustration and anger or tense, uh, tension and anxiety, uh, excessive desires, you know, selfishness. There's a whole range of things that we can see that, oh, well, these are kind of manifestations or outgrowths of the basic delusion. But delusion itself is, is, uh, can be a bit uh, more, more fuzzy, you know, because it's like, like the fish swimming in the lake. They don't necessarily see the water very clearly, but it's all around them. So delusion is actually the, the misunderstanding that, that uh, when we perceive things um, in a way which is not actually in accordance with reality. So this is, this is our job, is to try to, to try to break through that gradually, bit by bit. And we start with basic mindfulness practices. This is why we spend so much time talking about mindfulness, uh, encouraging mindfulness, being established in the present moment, being aware of the body, is because when mindfulness uh, is strengthened, when it is supported with uh, a, uh, the, the power of uh, serenity developed in meditation and the focused uh, continuity of awareness, then we start to get glimpses of seeing things more clearly. When our minds are scattered, when our minds are fraught with difficult emotions, or simply when, when we're just so busy, then it can be very difficult to see things as they truly are because everything is just very stirred up. So just allowing everything to, to calm down helps. Right? This is one reason why we practice meditation, developing calm and serenity. But that has the, the purpose of supporting clear seeing. One of the classic similes that our teacher, Ajahn Chah, uses is a still forest pool. Now, if you have a, a pool in the forest and uh, the wind is whipping it and you're stirring up all the water and it becomes very muddy, animals are tromping through it, then the water is, is uh, it's impossible to see the bottom try to look through it, and you can't really get a, a sense of clarity. But just allowing the dust to settle, allowing the mud to settle in the water, not disturbing it any further, kind of protecting it so, so that it, uh, it has the opportunity to settle out. And gradually, we're able to see the details of what's in the bottom of the pond. Eventually, you know, when water is very clear and pure, it's almost transparent, and you can see all the details, all the rocks, animals, whatever is in the pond. So our minds are very similar. When it's all stirred up, a lot of animals coming and going, tromping through it, then it's difficult to see. It's difficult to see the bottom. 
It's difficult to really uh, plumb the depths and, uh, and see what's in there. So it's very helpful, necessary, beneficial to allow everything to calm down, and then naturally things become a bit more clear, and then we can encourage that with specific meditations um, that the Buddha recommends to look at things from various perspectives, specific perspectives and uh, contemplations that encourage insight to develop. So what we're referring to with this word enlightenment, enlightenment is not the greatest word to use, um, but it's kind of what we have in our English language, certain approximation. It refers to when we have our stream of consciousness, which is operating with habits of uh, whether it's greed or selfishness or anger or frustration, it's all encompassed within delusion, then it's very difficult to achieve any sustainable happiness. Uh, it's very easy to, for human beings to create problems and suffering for themselves and others. When we're able to gradually eliminate these negative or unwholesome habits and characteristics from our stream of consciousness, then naturally we, uh, we speak in a true and a wise way, we act in a true and a wise way, we tend to do things which are beneficial for ourselves and for others in creating a sense of harmony. So for lack of a better term, we call it enlightenment. Often it's easier to use the Pali term. The Pali is the language of the original uh, Theravada suttas. Uh, and the word Nibbana actually means cool. It's like the, the fires of our defilements have been cooled. You know, the flame has gone out. So Nibbana. There are certain Pali terms which actually make it easier to discuss because they have specific meanings. When we translate things into English, in one sense it makes it easier and more accessible um, if you understand the meaning behind the English word, but an English word also carries with it a whole range of other connotations that we may use in other contexts. So it can also be uh, confusing. And the word enlightenment is used in a wide variety of ways. See it in advertisements. You see it in commercials. You see it in a whole wide range of ways. So, when we use it, or if I use the word nibbana, uh, Sanskrit nirvana, then what we're referring to is the elimination of any defiling influences within our stream of consciousness. Now, as I'm speaking, if anybody has any questions please feel free to interject, and then we can carry on. Yes? Uh, the removal of defilements could, you know, lead to a neutral state. But in the way I've heard it described, there's also positive qualities associated, like being good to others or being helpful in society. Um, so I guess I'm just curious about sort of the place that those negative emotions reside like is it 
you know, I've heard from psychological literature, it's actually really good to experience negativity, rage, um, because it's all part of that human condition. And I was just wondering if you could speak about mm -hmm. the positive versus negative and what, how that looks in an enlightenment. So when we talk about enlightenment, there still is, um, there still is very much a personality. There still is uh, action. Uh, it's just that the negative or unhelpful characteristics of our personality have fallen away. And it's very transformative. So uh, it's, it's not a... The people I've met who have taken this path to high levels are the most impressive people I've met, most impressive human beings I've met. So you see the potential that humans have. Now, in terms of emotions such as rage, frustration, in Buddhism we try to find, this is one of the places where we talk about the middle way, but we don't want to repress emotions, but we also don't need to express the emotions. Right? So we ex when we're meditating, especially, or just in daily life, when emotions come up, you want to fully acknowledge their presence. But that doesn't mean that we have to express it, uh, act out of it, from it. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that there's anything necessarily positive about that. Right? But they will come up, right? for sure. And you want to uh, respect the power of those emotions. You don't necessarily need to understand every cause and condition for the arising of emotions you know, in our past history. But in the present moment, then it's very important to fully acknowledge, pay attention, and be aware of whatever is arising. That will make life exciting enough. Don't have to worry that life is going to get boring if you're enlightened. The process, the process will be exciting enough. If you go on a retreat, you think, oh, just be so peaceful, but maybe a bit boring. Right? And then you go on a retreat, and it's like, oh, there's memories coming up, and you know, a whole range of stuff that is normally maybe below the surface, gets an opportunity to come up to the surface, and then this is the role of, this is essentially you know, the, the, the cutting edge of practice is when things are coming up and we're aware of it, and then um, we try to surround it with acceptance and uh, awareness without fueling it, without perpetuating it, and then it has the opportunity to cease. Old traumas, old emotions, whatever, that uh, can cease then. So there is the experience of it, uh, but not necessarily, or definitely not the glorification of it pay attention to where in the body you're feeling the emotion. So that's mm -hmm. like more an act of witnessing the emotion, where it is in the body. Mm -hmm. But if you have any other um, experiences, because that's such a delicate line kind of, of like mm -hmm. not repressing, but also not fueling. So how to kind of walk that line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The mind can be so quick to change and, can, and emotion can take over our awareness so quickly that often it, it is, it can be easier 
to paying attention to the sensations in the body, we're, and, and at that point, gives us uh, insight into what we're, what we're feeling mentally. Right? Because the body and mind, um, they will influence each other. So, for example, if you're doing a type of meditation where you're paying attention to sensations throughout the body, kind of systematically going through, and then, and then you kind of maybe, for example, you get down into your solar plexus and you notice, oh, Jesus seems really kind of tight or down there, or it's not very relaxed, and then just paying attention to those sensations, we may notice, oh, I didn't realize it, but that is being caused because there's a background fear in my mind. Fear, insecurity, worry. You know, it's causing kind of a certain tightness. And then we, so that can be one way. Because some emotions are very easy to see, but maybe not easy to see objectively. And we just get carried away by them. Now, there's no, there's no magic formula. The basic instructions are fairly simple. But it, it, they're not necessarily easy because you know, our habits are very strong. So this quality of mindfulness allows us to observe somewhat objectively. Right? Not totally objectively, but, but increasingly objectively. So it's like it gives us space in the mind. When there's, we all have some mindfulness, but when mindfulness is not very strong, then an emotion comes up and we just kind of get swept away with it. A thought comes up. A future plan comes up, we get swept away. A memory comes up, and we can be lost for 10 minutes. So mindfulness is a quality of mind that, through training, paying aware, paying attention to the breath, paying attention to the body, paying attention to what's going on around us, gradually gets stronger and stronger, and it gives a sense of spaciousness. So then the same emotion comes up, and it's like it comes up within a, a greater a sphere of awareness. And it's kind of see, oh, there's that emotion. Right? There's that emotion. Right. I, I see it. I acknowledge it. But I don't have to just blindly get sucked into it. I mean, some, you can kind of say, oh, is, this, is this emotion wholesome or unwholesome? Does it have the flavor of, of being beneficial or unbeneficial? You know, there are some emotions like loving kindness and compassion, which uh, you know, are good to develop, to be able to then have a choice to say, oh, you know, this is emotion that I want to encourage, give energy to. But there are many emotions which we can see, oh, this is going to be destructive. Right? If I allow this to, if I go into this, it's tempting to go into this, but it could be destructive. And then there are many emotions which not quite clear. Maybe it would be beneficial, maybe not. And then you just have to have enough mindfulness to kind of watch the whole process, somewhat objectively. So the whole thing is, is a kind of an experiment where we, we learn a lot about ourselves. You know? And each, each of that, you know, every time we do that, we learn a little bit more about ourselves. Watching this cause and effect relationship as, as things arise. Okay, a thought arises. And you don't have to analyze where that thought came from. Hmm? Worry arises. You don't have to analyze where it came from, but just notice, okay, worry is essentially a fear. Okay, there's some fear there. Huh? Insecurity arises. Okay, there's a little insecurity. That's fear. Huh? 
Desire arises, okay, there's a bit of desire there. Right? And uh, not judging, not pushing away, but also not blindly following. Then we start to achieve that, that, um, that balance, that fine balance that we're talking about, neither repressing nor expressing. And of course, there are some times where we choose to express, but it's good just we don't want to do things blindly. We don't, we want, don't want to be living blindly like a robot. Someone pushes our button and then we react. You know, it's just living a robotic life. Yes. This is on the mindfulness and um, when to interfere and when not to. I have a tendency of hurrying up. I always think I'm going to be late, which I'm, I'm never late, but it's a habit. <laughs> and so I watched it today. Um, and I just watched it and I thought, well, should I slow down my steps? Should I do something to interfere or should I just watch it? And then, um, in the car, I could still feel it. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go to my breath for a while and stabilize my mind. And then my mind went into all the worries that I could worry next week, not about getting here, which was the, the, the one, the fear of the first fear, but it was like, and I saw that. And then when I saw it, then it kind of slowed it evaporated and I could be in the present moment. But I'm just thinking, um, it's a strong habit for me and it causes a little bit of dis disease. Mm -hmm. Do I just watch it or can I interfere? Can I, you know, go to my breath to stabilize the mind? Should I slow down my um, steps and feel the pain of that because my mind is pushing me forward? So... Something like being on time generally is, is a helpful thing. It's a good thing. Right? Last night I gave a whole talk on being on time. Um, and even with good things, we have to look, what is our relationship with that? Right? I mean, we can take any, any aspect of the Dhamma practice and we can ruin it by becoming neurotic about it or becoming too obsessed with it or too tight around it or identifying with it or attached to it, right? So even something like, even something kind of ordinary, okay, it's polite to be on time, but how do we relate to that? If it's causing a sense of, or if it's coming from a place of fear, right? Fear, worry, what are other gonna, people, are people gonna think if I'm late? What am I gonna think about myself if I'm late, right? It's all, there's a you know, way identify with someone who's on time, we have a whole construct that we form around what other people might think. Well, what is it? You know, what is it? And so just observing that whole process, there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about being on time or, or being a bit late. Sometimes, even with the best intentions, we're going to be late. But then we look, well, what's, what are the emotions around it? And when we talk about when to interfere and when to observe, so mindfulness in Theravada or Vipassana circles are, is, is emphasized a lot. But the Buddha didn't teach just mindfulness. He taught a whole Noble Eightfold Path. And every step of the Noble Eightfold Path has to be conjoined with right effort. Right? So it's being... My, being clearly aware of what's happening in the present is an essential first step, 
But then comes the right effort of, if it's wholesome, let's try to encourage it. If it's unwholesome, then maybe we need to take an active step to to change something, um, uh, look at something in a different perspective, allow it to cease. Uh, some things, some some mental habits are very deeply entrenched, and so we need to find uh, skillful means, ways of, of doing things, maybe to change our habit patterns. Um, uh, you can be creative. I mean, there's hundreds of different ways that we come up with to try to teach ourselves um, to overcome maybe negative habits that we have, uh, to kind of counter them, to bring them into balance. If we have a tendency to to you know to, to always be motivated by by this or worrying about what other people think, then okay, well, how can we how can we consciously do something to to you know kind of challenge ourselves so that we're not blindly falling into that habit over and over again? Something to uh, help them cut that process. So mindfulness is a mindfulness in itself. If it's very strong, we'll do that, right? You know, we just notice, oh, there's, there's worry coming up. I might be late, even though, there's, even though we're perfectly on time. You know, worry comes up, oh, geez, I might be late. And you notice this physical uh, effects of that, certain stress in the body, certain stress in the mind. Which is, if mindfulness is very strong, then it just goes, boop, and it evaporates, Mental stress evaporates, and physical, the body relaxes. Mindfulness is very strong. So then it's like maybe that's all the effort we need. But often it's the case that mindfulness isn't quite strong enough. So then you you were aware, oh, I'm feeling a little tense, feeling a little worried. Then maybe let's use right effort in some way. How can we, maybe there's something we can say to ourselves to help to calm us down. Um, Come up with... You know, what works for one person may not work for another person. But for ourselves, we're feeling, oh, I'm feeling a bit worried and stressed right now. Um, if I'm late, everything's fine, right? You know, just sometimes it's just a little phrase. It's just a reminder to ourselves. Hey, if I'm late, that's perfectly okay. You can, like, give yourself permission or something. And then, and then that may work to help alleviate it. And then five minutes later, it comes up again because it's a strong habit. And then you have to be patient and persistent come back, hey, if I'm late, everything's fine. And then it comes up again, if I'm late, everything. And then gradually, you know, it changes. And then over a period of months, years, you realize, oh, I'm not so, you know, I'm still on time, but it doesn't really bother me if I was late. So it is always a combination of mindfulness, but then right effort as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one thing I notice uh, when I'm not in a formal meditation, if I'm uh, bored or anxious, I do something so quickly that that feeling and sensation passes very quickly. I mean, I think all of us have our go-to things. And I think one benefit of seated meditation is that you don't get up and turn the TV. Uh, you know, you don't get up and, I don't know, whatever, a glass of wine or whatever your go-to thing is. And so you can see the trajectory uh, of that emotion better than you would off the cushion. But uh, I also had a, just another uh, sort of re- thought, realization, is that uh, 
in our professional training, especially if your profession happens to be, you know, heavily people intensive during your training, it's somewhat similar to seated meditation in that the other person triggers an emotion in you and your range of possible responses is quite narrow. So in a sense, you have to kind of sit with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just thought, you know, you were talking about how do you, or we were talking about how do you bring this, you know, to someone who's not in a, you know, a formal monastery type setting. And it's just interesting. I think professional training really, in some sense, fosters a little bit of what seated meditation is mm-hmm. like. Yeah, absolutely. And conversations, conversations with other people tend to be the more advanced and complicated forms of bringing mindfulness into daily life. And believe me, in monasteries, we have people as well. <laughs> Where, wherever you have people, you're going to have opportunity for um, emotions. <laughs> that's, why we, that's why we start with the simple things. Right? We start... Just sitting quietly, immobile, with your eyes closed. It's difficult enough, isn't it? You know, just to just maintain a continuity of awareness. But then once we open our eyes, there's so many more things to be distracted by once we're walking, even if we're not talking or interacting with others. It's already much more complicated. And then once you add uh, a conversation or a dialogue with other people, then there's, um, there's so much going on. You know, so much information coming verbally, non-verbally, concepts arising in our own mind, emotions, responses. Mindfulness helps to give the feeling that it's all um, slowing down and being more spacious. Even though in real time, everything's happening in the same, same speed, from our own subjective experience, it feels like it's more spacious, there's more time. It's like the, the possible reactions or responses that are available to us are quite open and wide. And without mindfulness, like you say, we tend to have our, our narrow range of responses. You know, we could be um, respond sharply, keep silence. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Or, you know, in certain situations. And so mindfulness kind of opens up a range of possible responses. And even though, you know, it may happen in a moment, it feels like, oh, we have time to kind of look at what, what's the most beneficial, helpful way to respond. Right? So we definitely try to practice in all of those situations. But, you know, keep in mind that that's, there's a lot going on, even in a, a normal conversation, um, especially in a workplace situation, especially when you add deadlines and, and pressures, and, right? Then, then it's even more uh, challenging. So it's, we need to find time and space when we're home, alone, or in more simple circumstances to be able to train our mindfulness in, in times and places where there's not much going on, right? I mean, already when we come home, not doing anything, 
except maybe preparing dinner or whatever and, and just watching the mind, watching, am I looking for a distraction? If something, like if something comes up throughout the day, are we looking to try to avoid it by turning on the TV? Uh, there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about TV, but what is our relationship with it? Why are we turning it on? Right? Is it just for, so that we don't have to be with our own mind? Right? Is it just for distraction? Same thing with music. There's not, nothing intrinsically good or bad about music, but um, are we doing it as a, as a distraction or as a way to run, run away? Um, wine, food, basically anything, books, even Dhamma books, you know? In a monastery, in our in monasteries in Thailand, we didn't have many distractions available to us. You know? So people go to the library and read Dhamma books if they don't want to be with, with their mind. You know, as generally as as distractions go, you know, it's it's a pretty good one. But even that, you know, we'd have to be careful. Why am I going to the library? Is it just because it's too difficult to just to sit and be with with what our experience is? Yes, Curtis? Um, I asked you last night about uh, this Buddhist, uh, I ran across this Buddhist teaching where the Buddha said, well, keep the company of, of, of wise people and you'll become wise and try not to keep the company of fools. And so, and then you, you pointed out how that gets to be a little trap because you can sit around and make lists of, well, they're foolish, I won't hang out with them and that kind of thing. Um, but I've translated that, especially when thoughts come up, positive or negative, you know, is this wholesome or is this unwholesome? You know, if I enter this, is this, is this lead to, I don't quite know how to say it, but uh, a wholesome experience of the path or a more complete experience or a, a place of uh, compassion and wisdom and awareness and, or is this unwholesome? Mm-hmm. And that's been helpful for me simply, you know, not to go into the vision of it or the story of it or the narrative of it or the psychology of it or the reasons for it. I just say, well, I, I don't have to go there. That's unwholesome. Right. And it's, it's helped me stop, cut, cut things away. But you, know, you, you mentioned that right effort was the first or the most important or the focal point that you looked at the other uh, all the other uh, eightfold path, mm-hmm. and then you, is right effort related to? I guess I'm wondering: is that related to wholesome and unwholesome? And and what what is meant mm-hmm. in Buddhist studies, etc., by wholesome, unwholesome? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question, because in English we tend to throw terms around like good karma, bad karma, positive and negative which are a bit, people can relate to generally, but they're not very clear. And when the Buddha talked about the wholesome and the unwholesome, he used the Pali words kusala, wholesome, and akusala, unwholesome, and he was very precise. These were very precise terms. So that which is unwholesome is that anything arising from the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so then we really have to, to understand, well, what emotions do arise from greed, hatred, and delusion, right? I mean, greed, hatred, these are extreme versions of that movement of the mind. But there are many more subtle, uh, mostly, usually subtle versions of that. And recognizing 
you know, the presence of, of greed, hatred, and then the pervasiveness of, of delusion, identification, um, self-centeredness. Right? So that's the, uh, the unwholesome. The wholesome is, is when those aren't present. Right? So mindfulness in and of itself is wholesome. Huh? Um, you have qualities such as uh, metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, equanimity. These are wholesome emotions. Um, the, the movement of the mind to, to help, to serve, uh, to be of assistance to other people, what we call dana or generosity, uh, that's wholesome. So when, when those arise, then we can be clear. Right? So that is, that's part of mindfulness. Mindfulness brings us to the present moment and, you know, and, and brings what wisdom we have to bear to see, okay, this is wholesome state of mind, this is unwholesome state of mind. Right? And really it's happening very quickly. You know, it's every moment it kind of, can be changing. So mindfulness gets really quick, really up to speed. And then when we see that which is wholesome, the Buddha says, right effort. Right effort doesn't mean just trying hard. You know, the Buddha was very specific. Right effort is when, when we see wholesome emotions arising, then we can encourage that, you know, um, uh, bring it to perfection, you know, um, develop it. You know? um, it's, not, it's not simply, oh, wholesomeness arises and we're aware of it, and then we let it go. Oh, wholesomeness arises, and then encourage it. How can I strengthen that? How can I, how can I really make that a, a strong habit? Right? Right? And, um, and then how can I actually bring up you know, when wholesomeness? You know, if I know that if we see the relationship between generosity and happiness, for example, you know, when we help other people, we tend to feel good about ourselves. Every, it's kind of mutually beneficial all around. So... How can we bring that up? How can we create situations? How can we you know, look for situations where we can help others? Right? So we're going to develop that quality. Um, bringing up, actually bringing up loving kindness, bringing up compassion, empathizing with other people's suffering. You know, these are things that we can encourage and bring up. That's also right effort. And then looking at the unwholesome side, when, when unwholesome qualities are there, present, they're already there, how can we... How can we allow them to cease? You know, you can't, you can't force them out. You can't, you, they're, not, they're not an enemy in that sense. That you, and you, you can't try to, you try to kill them or push them away. That doesn't work. You know, you can't repress them, push them underneath the rug. That doesn't work. But, but there are ways to, you know, be mindful and then wisely allowing it to cease without fueling it. You know, without fueling the unwholesome, then they will tend to cease on their own. Strong emotions may take a while, but eventually they will cease. Right? And the more we do that, gradually those habits become weaker and weaker. Our habits of responding with anger and frustration become weaker and weaker. And then correspondingly, the wholesome quality of patience becomes stronger and stronger. And then the fourth right effort is to look for ways of how can I prevent the, the unwholesome from arising? What can I do in my life to, you know, we talked about if you have the choice, then it is helpful to hang out with wise people or to hang out, to spend time with people who have qualities that we aspire towards. 
We don't always have the choice, but if we do, then it can be helpful to do that. And say, well, that, if, I hang, if I hang out with wiser people, that tends to encourage the wholesome, right? If I hang out with people who are angry and greedy and selfish, then we will tend to be influenced by that as well. We, we can't, unless we're very strong, we can't help that. We're just influenced by who's around us. So, so what can I do to maybe uh, discourage the unwholesome from arising? Maybe there are certain circumstances that we know if we get in that circumstance, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> All right? And so, so just out of kindness for ourselves, we can say, well, I don't have to put myself in that circumstance. Right? Maybe it's certain people that we just we know that probably best if we just don't spend time with that person because every time we do, we just get upset. Right? Or whatever. You know, certain situations, certain people, or certain just ways that we look at life. And say, okay, well, I'll try to avoid that. And that is a, is a, wise, that's a wise avoidance. It's, n- it's not that avoidance is always bad. It's just why are we avoiding something? If, you, if, you, if you're avoiding something which is, you know is not going to turn out well, that's wise. Right? Okay, good. Well, maybe take, we'll go gradually steer away from those circumstances because they will tend to stimulate the unwholesome. And that's okay, right? Even that, you know, you know, it takes balance. We're not trying to do it out of, out of fear or aversion. It's like, I'm afraid to go into these situations because it's going to bring up unwholesome. It's like, okay, well, then we're motivated by fear, and we need to be aware of that. Or, I don't like these people. I want to avoid them. Okay, well, then we're motivated by aversion. That's not, that's not the best either. So kind of can we wisely move away from situations which will give rise to the unwholesome, gradually wisely move towards situations which will encourage the wholesome? So the Buddha talked about the four right efforts. Right? So four right efforts, and that's when you're so encouraging wholesome emotions, bringing them to developing them, bringing them to perfection. So second, allowing unwholesome emotions to cease and then keeping unwholesome emotions at bay is the fourth. So that always has to go hand in hand with mindfulness. And without, without clear awareness, it's very difficult to do right effort because we don't, wholesome and unwholesome are happening, but we don't have any clear awareness of it. And so we're just kind of blindly stumbling around in the dark. So we need to, need to be clearly aware of what's going on and recognizing wholesome and unwholesome. And at times, the times just being aware will be enough, but, but just watching. There are other times where a bit more of an active, uh, you know, active um, in, involvement in, in encouraging the unwholesome and discouraging the unwholesome is actually very helpful. And that can take a whole wide range of things. You know, and there's, you know some, some things are just very, very strong. There was, there was one monk, a disciple of, 
one of the, the teachers of Ajahn Chah, um, and a bit senior, contemporary, when he was young, I mean, he ended up being one of the great teachers, but when he was young, he had such, he had a really strong lust, you know, and he was just, it was really difficult for him to be a monk. And so his teacher, Ajahn Man, told him, um, first of all, don't eat and just chop wood. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes you have to revert to what works. You know, if the subtle doesn't work, then you go for, you know, something which is a little less subtle. And if that doesn't work, you go with something a little less subtle. If that doesn't work, okay, don't eat, just chop wood. <laughs> and so he was, he was doing that for, you know, he kept fasting and just chopping wood. And, and his, his teacher wasn't telling him to do anything different. And he finally came to the community meeting, the fortnightly community meeting, and he opened his robe, and it's all like ribs. He said, how long do I have to do this for? <laughs> you know, I'm just like skin and bones. <laughs> so bottom line is, you know, what works. Okay. Might be helpful if we do a little meditation, spend a little time doing sitting meditation. Um, if people have been sitting and you want to quickly stretch your legs, stand up and stretch your legs, that's fine. And then uh, we can do a little sitting before continuing on. You can place one foot in front of the other in this way, one foot on the opposite thigh. Find a way which, is, uh, which feels stable and relaxed and balanced. If you're sitting on a chair, then, yeah, everyone here seems to have good posture. Um, same principles apply when we're sitting in a chair. When it feels, you know, stable. You know? And from the top of your head right down to the base of your spine, self-supporting, allow the muscles and shoulders to relax. Usually bring the hands together, one hand on top of the other, thumb tips touching, resting the hands on the lap. Take a deep breath, gently close your eyes and feel the sensations within your body. Breathe in, noticing the pressure of the air coming into the lungs and the belly. As we breathe out, allowing the body to relax. Settling into the posture. As we begin and bringing awareness into our present environment, we can pay attention to the sounds, the temperature, the sensations on our skin. the 
sensations within our body. brings our awareness to the physical realm around us and within us. As we sit, it's normal that there will be thoughts arising. But also notice that in between thoughts, there's space. In between the chattering thoughts, there's silence. So also pay attention to the silence and the space. Thoughts may arise, but there's nothing that we have to figure out during this time. There's nothing we have to plan, no problems we have to solve. Simply playing, paying close attention to our physical environment, the sensations within our body, and our mental activity. with a broad, spacious awareness. With a spaciousness of mind that is large enough to include 
the thoughts, the sensations, the entirety of our experience without shaking the space. Within all of the sensations and sounds, emotions of our experience, as we sit quietly with our eyes closed, it becomes easier to notice the sensations of the air flowing into the body and flowing out. Each time that we notice, we get lost in thought. Gently bring your awareness back and check. Are we breathing in or are we breathing out?
to whatever degree we can experience a sense of peace, inner silence or spaciousness, then notice the pleasant aspect of that. How pleasant it is just to breathe in in a relaxed way, breathe out, nothing to worry about. When we're meditating, there's no external responsibilities, nothing we have to do, nothing to worry about, no worries. Simply being with our breath, being with our body, Enjoying the simplicity of the moment.
stretch your arms and legs if you wish. We were talking about insight being seeing things as they truly are. And it's not something that we can will ourselves to do. We can't just say, I'm determined to see things as they truly are and then force it to happen. But there are certain conditions which we can gradually create which will allow, allow the truth of the way things are to become more apparent to us. By definition, the Buddha said, it's impossible to see things as they truly are as long as our minds are clouded with what he calls the five hindrances. When we sit in meditation, there are obstacles that will come up. And the Buddha classifies them into five categories. First being sensual desire. Second, ill will or anger. Third is dullness, sleepiness. Fourth is restlessness and worry. And the fifth is doubt or confusion. So essentially any of these movements of mind are going to block the clarity of mind, block the ability of the mind to rest calmly, with serenity, with clarity. It stirs up the mind, like that image of the pool that we were talking about, kind of stirring it all up. So then this is a practical way that we can measure how clearly we are seeing things, the degree to which the five hindrances are present or absent. And these five hindrances have very obvious forms, but also very subtle forms. And in da daily life existence, even when we're meditating, they're usually present in some form or another, even subtle forms. Some form of subtle attraction, subtle aversion, subtle dullness, not quite sure what, you know, how to, you know, a bit of uncertainty, a doubt about what we're doing. When the mind is completely free of these five hindrances, that's what we define as good samadhi. <laughs> I'll, I'll refine that definition. Now, now, samadhi is what we refer to as the mind being serene, peaceful, calm, still. And all of us have some samadhi. All of us are able to concentrate to a certain degree. And like mindfulness, we all have it, but it may not be developed very much. So with mindfulness, you know, this clear awareness that we're developing has to go hand in hand with mind being peaceful.
peaceful and still. Often when we just talk about mindfulness, people may be referring to mindfulness together with samadhi and other wholesome aspects of mind, and it's just a shorthand way of, of saying it. But mindfulness in and of itself wouldn't be in balance. If it's only mindfulness without much samadhi, then we may feel quite scattered still. You know? Wherever sound, wherever thought, and we see something, and then we have a perception, and then there's a physical sensation, and we're aware, we're aware, aware, aware of everything that's going on around us. It's not very peaceful. If you have samadhi without much mindfulness, then that's also be something to watch out for because you can get into a meditation, it's feeling very peaceful, but rather dull, cloudy. There's not much awareness there at all. Sometimes almost no awareness. And you're not asleep, but there's almost no awareness. It's like going into darkness or a fog. Time passes quickly, feel relaxed, and then the bell goes and think, oh, that was good. And it is relaxing, but it's not very useful for transferring into wisdom. So we really need a mind that's balanced with both this clear awareness and this settled peace of mind. Very calm, peaceful, relaxed, and very aware. So when this samadhi is developed to the point where there are no longer any of these five hindrances affecting the mind, that's the place where we can actually see things as they truly are. That's the place where insight happens. So we can either come at it, you, know, you come at it from just practicing and gradually the hindrances become weaker and weaker until you're sitting, as far as I can see, there's no hindrances there. And then, good, just keep developing that. Having the mind rest there as much as possible till that starts to become the norm. Because that's the place, that's the place that we can be relatively assured that we're going to see things without masses of overlay of, of our own projected perceptions. Start to start to clear away all of the the swirling desires for this and that, the the, the strong emotions of of anger, frustration, the worries drop away, and we can just rest simply with clarity, and then we start to see things that were there the whole time, but we were too preoccupied to see them. So with the cessation of the five hindrances, this is what we refer to as access concentration or access samadhi. This is a commentarial term. The Buddha didn't use this term, but the Buddha regularly referred to the five hindrances and, and uh, allowing the five hindrances to cease. And from there, one sees things as they truly are. So when the five hindrances cease, then we can still see, we can still hear, we can still have sensations in our body, 
We still think we have the ability to cognize. And so this is the place where we can, we can start to understand our environment or what we define as reality. What do we define as our world, our reality? It's basically what we see, what we hear, what we smell, taste, touch, and perceive, what we cognize, what we think, remember. That's our reality. <clears throat> Outside of that, there may be some objective reality, or there may not be. But at least we know from our own subjective experience, we can be sure that this is what we define as reality. And as far as the Buddha was concerned, the essential point is not whether there is an objective reality, but the essential point is how do we relate with this subjective reality that we have, our own seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and cognizing, and relate to it in a way which is not going to lead to suffering or dukkha and is going to relate to it in a way which is going to um, achieve the highest form of happiness possible for human beings, which is another way that he defined Nibbana, or enlightenment. Now, when samadhi goes even deeper, then with this clear awareness and focused attention, focused mindfulness, very uh, a very deep peace of mind, the mind can actually unify so that it's no longer possible to see or hear or feel sensations in the body. Mind is just like one with awareness of usually brightness and uh, sense of happiness, peace, uh, serenity, uh, one-pointed, you know, the mind is just still and one. So when you hear stories of Buddhist monks and nuns or Buddhist meditators, you know, it's just sitting for long periods of times, for days, you know, just in a, in a meditative state. This is usually what we're referring to. In Pali, it's called jhana, J-H-A-N-A. And this is the perfection of samadhi. This is when samadhi really... You know, this is this is possible. Now, while the mind is in samadhi, it's not possible to develop insight because mind is just one. You can't you can't look at something and 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 see you you just mind's just one. But it's very wholesome. It's it's like the the peak of wholesomeness, and it's incredibly energizing. And then when we exit that state, when that state naturally ends, then we come back to this access samadhi, where, again, we're seeing, hearing, all the senses are functioning. We can think if we wish. But the mind's very stable, very energized, very clear. Mindfulness is supercharged. And so this is... This is the optimal place for insight to happen. And when people come out of a sense of samadhi, they may, typically, you will feel wonderful. 
you'll feel relaxed and peaceful and energized, and you just feel so, feel so wonderful that it's tempting just to think, ah, oh, that was wonderful. That was great. And then not do anything. And, and eventually, the wholesome benefits from that samadhi will gradually disappear. Maybe we feel so wonderful and relaxed that we just fall asleep. <laughs> so that's the point where, where sometimes it may take a little effort. Say so we come out of a very, what people call, oh, I had a good meditation today. Well, usually people define that as, oh, I felt very peaceful, or I felt very focused, or I didn't have any distractions. Right? So I had a good meditation. So come out of a good meditation, and instead of only just allow, instead of just allowing that good energy to dissipate, then see it. Oh, this is the valuable window for developing insight. You come up after after a peaceful meditation, then really take the awareness and start to maybe consciously and uh, intentionally look at some of these basic characteristics that the Buddha talks about. For example, impermanence, how things are constantly changing. Now, generally with meditation, as we become less distracted, we kind of notice some of these things normally or naturally anyways. We start to get insights coming because we're seeing things you know, through a, uh, less, fewer and fewer filters of distorted perceptions. But then we can assist this process by gradually, you know, kind of saying, well, how about instead of just looking at the continuity of things, we intentionally look at how things are constantly changing and changing and changing every moment. You know, there's a sound, but then the sound ceases and it changes. And the sound is constantly changing. The, uh, the environment is constantly changing. Our bodies are constantly changing. What we see is constantly changing. And just noticing this flow of change is happening all the time, bringing our attention to that intentionally. Right? And when the mind is peaceful, when it's not swirling with the five hindrances, uh, then it's ripe. It's just, it's just ready to see things. You know? And... Even if we, we read these teachings and we try to practice contemplating impermanence, if our minds are not peaceful, it's very difficult to get below the surface. It's kind of scratching the surface. You know, we say, yes, everything's changing, but it, somehow it doesn't sink in. You know? But when the minds are very peaceful, very still, very aware, Mindfulness is very refined. And then we may just look at one thing. You know, just look at one thing. It's like, oh, this, gla- this cup was full. Now it's empty. And it's, it's something so ordinary, but it's like, wow, the truth of impermanence. You realize every conditioned phenomena is the same, has the same characteristics. It's gone. It's it's has ceased. It's changed. Somehow it just goes deeper, because essentially all things in life share these basic characteristics of 
of constantly being in flux, of being in motion and changing. And if we see one thing very clearly with a peaceful mind and we really direct our attention to look at the change, then it sinks in and we realize, well, it's not just that one thing. It's basically everything. So this is where we come up with types of meditations which we call contemplations, which are more, um, maybe slightly more analytical, not necessarily using the thought processes in a very intellectual way, but directing our attention to look at things that we don't normally look at. We tend to be aware of the arising of new things. That's the exciting part. Noticing new things arising, something which is, oh, that grabs our attention. You know, that's interesting. Well, that's pretty, right? But then intentionally paying attention to the cessation, you know, the opposite of what we're normally looking at, gives us a more well-rounded picture of, of our reality. If we only pay attention to that which is pleasant or what we think is interesting or grabs our attention, then we have a very skewed and limited experience of our reality. Or sometimes we're conditioned only to pay attention to the negative. We just see, and we look and see, oh, you see all the negative characteristics in a person. You see the negative characteristics in ourselves. We see the negative characteristics in our situation. So then we can consciously, intentionally take our attention and look at what's positive. Look at the things that are going right. Look at the strengths. Look at the things which are pleasant. So of the three characteristics of existence, impermanence being the first, second is the inability to fully satisfy. They're, of course, intertwined. If we are looking to some, something externally or some concept as that which will fully satisfy us, then we really need to hang on to it. Right? I mean, that's where grasping comes in. It's like if, if, we're, if we're looking to a person or a situation or an idea or an aspiration as this is what's really going to satisfy me, this is what I'm basing my happiness on, then we really don't want that to change. Right? But that's, that's where the problems come in because we can't stop things from changing. As soon as we try to grasp onto something, it's already gone. It's already changed. As soon as we have the perfect moment and we're aware of it and we try to hold on to it, it's already gone. So then this whole question of things being satisfying. What do we look to? Where do we find a refuge for that which is going to be truly satisfying and reliable? What are the causes of suffering? What leads to the end of suffering? And this is very much tied in then with the, the third characteristic of non-self. Identification with things. What is it that we identify with in life that, that creates this sense that we are existing? Right? We identify with this body, we identify with our experiences, we identify with our memories, we identify with people around us, we identify with our things, right? 
it's very, something very simple as like, you know, okay, this is just part of nature, but I identify with it as my glass case. Already, you know, just look at it, and it encourages this sense of me, mine, right? Something very simple. It's so deeply ingrained. So when our minds are calm, then we have the opportunity to take a look at these aspects of life that we would normally never have the opportunity to look at. In daily life, when we're busy, you know, we're just working and trying to be patient. <laughs> you know, you know there's, there's plenty of opportunity in life just to work on the basics of being patient, kind, generally mindful, non-reactive. But then in more refined situations, in meditative situations, maybe on retreat, maybe at home, where the mind does go peaceful, then take that opportunity to consciously investigate, contemplate the nature of, you know, things are constantly changing. Are there, are there, are there things that I'm hoping are not going to change? If so, we set ourselves up for suffering, you know? I mean, it's, you know, and it's, some, it's funny sometimes, you know, we look at, you know, we think theoretically, of course, yes, I understand everything's changing, and then we realize, oh, actually, there's a lot in our life that we hope will never change. And so, oh, we're kind of setting ourselves up for something there, right? Because, of course, it's going to change. You have good health. Well, that's impermanent. That's going to change. We look young. Well, that's going to change, right? We have a wonderful relationship. Well, that's going to change. I mean, it may evolve and, and continue to be good, but it will definitely change in some way. Okay, why don't, I, why don't I stop there for now? Later on, we'll talk about the causes and conditions that will lead to samadhi. We're kind of working our way back from enlightenment to insight, to the causes of insight. But talking at this level... The questions? Yes, I was wondering, you talked about characteristics of, three characteristics of... Existence. Of existence. Mm -hmm. And they were impermanence mm -hmm. and the inability to satisfy. Mm -hmm. And what was the third? Anatta or non-self. Non-self. Mm -hmm. It's a characteristic of existence. When the Buddha was teaching, there was a general assumption that there was a true self. Right? I mean, this is, this is back in, um, there was a, there was not a, a clear uh, Hinduism at that time in the way we think of it today, but there was a, a wide range of, of philosophical understandings of the nature of human existence. And most of those included, in some form, a true self, right, called atta. It may not be our body, because the body's constantly changing. It may not be our uh, particulars of our personality, because those change over time, but there's some essence that is unchanging, eternal, um, and through the right spiritual practices will then be 
unified with God, Brahma, whatever. But I, like a, there's, a, there's an eternal true self in there somewhere. In there, out here, somehow. So that was either an assumption or an explicit teaching in most of the spiritual ways of, of looking at life in the time of the Buddha. And so the Buddha was quite radical in, in teaching anatta, which means non-self, saying if you really look very deeply, there is nothing that's not flowing and changing. Everything is flowing and changing. We, may, we identify with certain aspects of this flowing, changing reality, and we create a delusional perception of ourself based on, you know, this body. You know, this body is basically just part of nature. It's just elements, but we identify with it. We identify with certain aspects of our experience and gradually build up this whole complicated, well-rounded sense of self that we call me and my life. But with sustained contemplation, looking at all of those, everything that we identify with, realize, well, none of it is really, none is really, you know, none of it could be held on to as a true self. It is all just a, a, a temporary flow of experience that we identify with. So there's a, so it's the complete opposite of their Cartesian Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. There's no, there's no thinker before the thought. I'm just constant. So who I am is constantly, constantly emerging in the moment. Yeah, Buddhist way of looking at it would be. There are thoughts, therefore, we have the delusion of existence. <laughs> there are thoughts, therefore, I, I have the delusion that I exist. <laughs> or there, there are thoughts, but no thinker. Right? There is action, but there's not necessarily a person. I mean, conventionally, we talk in terms of persons, and, and even in meditations, you know, we talk in terms of of people and sending metta to people. But on the ultimate level, it's just a flow of, flow of physical and mental elements. It's just like a river. Yes? So um, did the Buddha have any teachings or what were his teachings on the concept of a soul? Um, and the idea that we each have some sort of specific inner light or essence, and is his idea more that that's like a, something that exists within the universe that's kind of flowing through us as opposed to it being like a unique individual identity? Well, soul, it can be another way that we define atta, Again, people may have a wide range of how they define it. But if you're thinking of soul in terms of 
our true essence that is unchanging, that somehow is going to be unified with a god or the divine, then the Buddha said, no, that's, that's not his teaching, and that, that's, that's not the correct understanding of the way things are. In terms of, say, light, the, the, essential, the essential quality of, of our, our mind, of our, of our mental existence, when we get all the rubbish out of the way, is that it is very bright and radiant, and that we can access that. It doesn't have to come from without. You know, it's already there within. We just need to get the rubbish out of the way, and then it will shine forth. If you define, again, if you define soul as, as that, then, then that would work, but also it's, it's changing as well. It's not like, like that, that nature, again, I'll use the Pali term, citta, C-I-T-T-A, but it's pronounced citta. And that means our mind, but it, it doesn't just mean thoughts or intellect. It doesn't just mean emotion, but it means like the whole aspect of the, um, everything about us except for our physical body. Right? And the essential nature of, of the jitta or the mind is that it is radiant and bright and pure, but it's still not, it's not something that we, it's not like an, an essential quality that is, is stable and unchanging. If it was, then it would be valid to identify that as, oh, that's my true self. That's my soul. And that's something I can rely on for, for happiness. But even that is constant, constantly changing. Or kind of arising, passing away, arising, passing away. Depends how you define soul. Now, there are some definitions of soul which incorporate impermanence. Like the soul starts off dirty and defiled and then gradually is purified until it's just pure light and then it, it uh, kind of dissolves into whatever. And that would be more consistent with the Buddhist way of looking at it. But we tend to, we tend to avoid the, using that word soul just because it has a lot of Christian connotations sometimes New Age connotations. So just trying to differentiate. Right? I mean, it's just an English word. So we, we try to talk in terms of non-self or what we identify with, um, the mind. But again, if you define it that way, you're welcome to use that term. Yes, uh, the presence of someone who's passed away. Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah, that, that, that seems quite plausible. Yeah. When uh, generally, my understanding is when people die, it doesn't mean they, I mean, there, there still is some momentum of their, I mean, unless they're fully enlightened, there's going to be some attachment to their surroundings, the peaceful people, attachment to their memories of their of their life, and so that energy consciousness can kind of stick around for a while, and especially other family members, sometimes close friends, 
will have a sense that, oh, this you know, person is still there. You know, whether it's a partner, a parent, um, you know, a sense of, I just, I just know, you know, mom's still here, I can feel her. Not all the time, but I can kind of feel her coming and going. Can't quite put your finger on it. But uh, that seems quite plausible, and there's many, I mean, I can't prove it, but there's lots of, lots of stories, you know, by reliable sources to kind of back that up. That, you know, that would be quite plausible. Right. Say, say for example, while we're alive, we develop, a, you know, we have a, a wonderful close relationship with our family, and as part of that, we are, we're attached to our family members. We're attached to our children. We care about them, and we're attached to our grandchildren. And then when grandma passes away, there still is that care, love, and attachment for family members, and, there may be, and that can be a cause for the consciousness to kind of keep hovering around a bit. Right? And that seems quite plausible. So you can either refer that, you know, refer to that as um, having taken rebirth in a in in that form, or not yet having taken rebirth, or lingering on from the previous birth. But it still is you know, mentally, at least, similar a similar consciousness uh, to the person when they were still alive. It doesn't mean it's their soul. It's just kind of a, conti- a conti- continuity or a continuation of that stream of consciousness. Well, it's time for us to break for lunch. So um, we will have a, a somewhat taste of the traditional... Uh, I have my alms bowl, my monk's bowl, and then uh, traditionally, traditionally, like monks in our monastery will, at dawn, will go into the, the town, walking silently, single file, and then anyone who wants to offer food will come and put food into our bowl, and we take that back, we share it out, and then we have our meal. <clears throat> so we'll do something a little similar today. Um, Anyone who wants, wants to offer something into my bowl can take one of the dishes and, and put something into my bowl, maybe one by one, and then I'll just say that's enough. Just so you know, you know sometimes people are like, mindfully place one spoonful. I say, okay, not enough yet. <laughs> A little bit more. A little bit more, keep it going. I say, okay. But I don't need a huge amount, so I'll just, just to kind of make it easy, I'll say, okay, that's enough. <laughs> and so if anyone, while we go out there, if, anyone, if you brought a dish, you know, the, the, you brought a dish and you want to just put some into my bowl, great. Um, or just everyone pick up one of the dishes that's already there, and then uh, everyone can put something into my bowl. I'll sit down. Maybe I'll say before everyone else eats, then uh, I'll say a bit about eating as meditation. And then I'll chant a blessing, and then we can all have the meal together. Okay? Now, during that time, if we really take eating as meditation, let's try to maintain silence, you know? or noble silence, which means you know, if, if it's really necessary to say something, that's fine. But let's try to tr- um, treat it like meditation, so that while we're eating, we're really paying attention. 
So I'll talk a bit about that in a minute. We can do the food offering first. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.